0: If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Alison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more. Wherever you get your podcast,
2: thank you so much for listening. Later on, a note before we begin: our guest on this episode, Patrick Haggerty of Lavender Country, passed away on October thirty-first at the age of seventy-eight. Several weeks after he'd had a stroke. This episode was produced before his death. We're grateful to be able to share this conversation with Patrick, and we hope our listeners will take some time to learn about his remarkable life, especially his pro-LGBTQ+, and pro-working-class activism. We're sending love to his many fans, friends, and especially his family at this difficult time. and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. And when I say folk musicians, I mean folk musicians. It's Cindy House <laughs> here with Lizzie No. Hi, Cindy. How's Hi. it going? It's going okay. Um, before we get into business today, let's get into other business. Um, we are in our fall fundraiser right now, if you're listening in real time. Uh, Basic Folk is a listener-supported podcast, so If you probably have heard me and Lizzie talk before this podcast about making a contribution, so um, please do that. Uh, And you can sign up for our newsletter, which is at our website, basicfolk.com. We have a monthly newsletter that I usually remember to send out. And you can follow us on social media at Basic Folk Pod. Lizzie No is on various platforms under various... Handles.
1: Well, I would be more consistent, but my Twitter got hacked. I'm Lizzy.no on Instagram and Lizzie No is dead on Twitter. And I'm Ask Me Imagine Dragon Ask Me About Imagine Dragons on TikTok.
2: Mm-hmm. What can yes, you do? You, you
1: gotta keep these people guessing, Cindy.
2: That's correct.
1: That's like a music industry adage. A lot of people think you need a consistent brand, but the truth is you need to keep people guessing.
2: Mm-hmm. Inconsistency. You need to keep on moving around. Yep. Never stay in one place. Never have one sound. Nope. And keep changing your social media handles. That's the three rules for success.
1: Wait, hang on. I need to close a window because there's constant construction. I'm sorry.
2: Constant. I'm sorry. I love that Katie Lang song, Constant Construction. Yeah. <laughs> we really
1: are. The queer queens of folk, mm. at least on the podcasting side
2: <laughs> I know, I know, I agree, Lizzie, what's going on?
1: Okay, I am on my one day off um in the middle of a tour, and I was telling you before we started recording that like the human mind and body are so adaptable that like whatever is going on at a certain point feels normal. So like when I woke up this morning, I felt like I was on vacation, like just even having 24 hours in my own home feels like so luxurious. I feel lazy. I feel leisurely. My Mm. body just refused to get out of bed. Um, And unfortunately, I also just started the first day of my period today. Now that I got home, hope all of our listeners are glad to hear about that. But it led me to mm. um, some ideas that I want to run past you. So mm-hmm. for the past however many millions of years, um, people with uteruses have had, you know, one week a month roughly where you feel like absolute garbage. You know, headache, cramps, you feel sad and mad and, and tired. Basically like Despair. you have a, a full week hangover. Um mm-hmm. And I was just thinking that it could be time to revise that. Like, let's go with, uh, let's try the beta version. And I get that w- we need to have some suffering or something. But instead of what's going on now, what if we had just a few days a month where your breath is so bad that you can't be around anyone? Mm. Or, um, or like a few days a month where it's opposite day. What do you think about that? So, like, you wouldn't have, there would be no blood, (laughs) there would be no headaches, no cramps, but everything would be the opposite. Or, you know, you would have to go Uh, out into the woods alone because no one could stand to breathe your
2: uh, air because of your bad breath. I think I would take that.
1: I I definitely would
2: would. Is it, are we still talking about people with uteruses thing only? I guess so. Make,
1: if we could really don't we make want equality, if we could have equality, I would, I would definitely advocate for that. But it feels almost too good to be true. Mm. Anyways, M- moving on to today's guest. Can I talk about our guest today? Yes, please. Um, this is a really, 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 really special episode of Basic Folk, and a lot of thought and love and experience went into this conversation. So the artist at the center of this episode is Lavender Country. Um, The front person of Lavender Country is my dear friend, Patrick Haggerty. And I. this is a first for me on Basic Folk. I don't know if you've done this before, but I kind of insisted that we not only talk to um, Patrick, but also his husband, J.B., because they've been together for decades and JB is a partner and a supporter and like a big part of what makes Lavender Country so special. Um, I first met Patrick this past spring when I went on the Roundup tour, which was a collective tour of a bunch of queer country and folk artists Um, My friend Paisley Fields invited me, and I really didn't know what I was getting into. And on a personal note, I had only come out as bisexual a few months earlier, and I was really touched that Paisley thought of me when the tour was getting put together. And I was nervous to show up among people that I admired, like Paisley and Austin Lucas and Lavender Country, people who have been out there doing the work of representing queer artists for a minute Um, and they just made me feel so welcome and like it's kind of like no matter how new you are to the community you still matter and belong and Patrick just embodies that every minute of every day he is a legend in the queer country community because he has the distinct honor of having released the first openly gay country album in 1973. Um, It was a groundbreaking album. It was a shocking album for a lot of people. And because of the content of it, he was blacklisted from Nashville for many, Mm. many, many years. I mean, in a lot of ways, the country music world still isn't ready for um, outspoken queer artists. But in 1973, it was just out of the question. And he didn't enter that situation naively. He knew that he was going to ruffle feathers, but he knew that he had to share from his experience and be open about his politics from the jump. So after the release of his debut album, he kind of knew that there wasn't a road ahead. He realized that he was going to have to compromise so much if he wanted to continue to have a music career. And he just wasn't willing to do that. He was a passionate um, advocate for working people, for women, for queer people, and he just refused to play the game where you smooth down your edges to gain music industry success. So he kind of just bowed out of the music industry. He was a social worker. um, He was a community organizer. He fell in love and became a husband, became a father, lived this whole full life of really doing the work in the community that he cared about. By a crazy twist of internet fate, a few years ago, somebody posted uh, the original Lavender Country album on YouTube, and in the contemporary context that we're living in now, it spread like wildfire. And there were people of all ages who were just hungry for this story of someone growing up in rural Washington state, being one of the only out gay people around, and his super funny lyrics, his just authentic story, and his infectious joy for life. So it became this viral hit. He ended up creating a second album that we that we um, talk about during our interview, and he started touring again. So it, it was just so special to talk with Patrick about his journey as a queer person, learning to be honest with himself, be honest with the world, the people in his life who really supported him as he took this really, really challenging journey and what it's been like to become a queer music icon later in life. Um, I'm getting kind of emotional because I think for those of us that are just perpetually online, we sort of take it for granted that it's like, Oh, everybody and their mother is queer now. And it's, it doesn't feel like a big deal a lot Mm -hmm. of the time, but when I went on this tour with Patrick, I was still really afraid to admit to people that I was queer or to try to claim that identity. Or I wasn't sure if I really belonged or was really an authentic queer person. And he is the type of person that holds space for everybody. At mm. every show, there are so many people that come up to him and say, Patrick, you changed my life. You helped me get through really hard times. Your music changed the world. And I firmly believe that that's true. So it was just such an honor to talk with Patrick and JB about their incredible lives and incredible journeys in music.
2: That's wonderful. Um, Let's get into this special conversation. This is actually the band's namesake. The song that we're going to check out is Lavender Country. And then we'll get to Lizzie's conversation with Patrick Haggerty on Basic Folk.
1: Welcome to Basic Folk, a podcast where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I'm here with Patrick Haggerty and Julius Broughton. We are here to talk about lavender country. Um, I want to jump right in because I have about 8 million questions to ask both of you. Um, Patrick, where did you grow up? Can you paint me a picture of like your earliest childhood?
0: Uh, I grew up on a tenant dairy farm. In a very rural environment, in a community called Dry Creek. <laughs> Dry
1: Creek? <laughs> Dry Creek. Nothing right. symbolic about that. <laughs>
0: right, Dry Creek. Dry Creek is a small community uh, west of the town of Port Angeles. And mm-hmm. Port Angeles is um, in Clallam County, Washington. And it's on the Canadian border. There's a piece of water called the Strait of Juan de Fuca that separates Clallam County from uh, Vancouver Island, British Columbia. So um, I grew up on a dairy farm, which was actually on the Strait. I grew up looking at the lights of Victoria, British Columbia. So it was about five miles from the... uh, Olympic National Park boundary. So uh, it's very, very beautiful country. I bet. Rivers, mountains, rainforest, beach, stunningly beautiful place.
1: You've, so some of our listeners may not know this, but um, the three of us were just on a tour together. So there's going to be elements of this interview where I'm asking a question, but I maybe already know the answer. And so I want to nudge you on something that I've heard you talk about on stage, which is that you had a different upbringing and a different set of parents, maybe, um, than other boys in, that you grew up with. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, what made your childhood a little bit different?
0: There's um, uh, about four or five different answers to that question. Mm -hmm. Number one, my dad, number two, my dad, number three, my dad, number four, my dad, (laughs) and number five, my dad. He was a a remarkable individual, uh, particularly in his uh, insight into who I was, which he saw at a very early age, and for his um, guidance, his insight and guidance in what to do with the sissy kid and rather than uh, reject me he embraced me and it was like baby Jesus gave me this sissy to love and (laughs) that's my job as his dad and I have to figure out how to do that and that's where he started and Of course, it made all the difference because he figured out along the way how to embrace me, support me, forgive me my sins, and support my talents. And um, I was quite a handful. He was uh, a man's man. He was a machinist. He was completely heterosexual. He was completely in love with my mother. Mm. And uh, he didn't know any more than anybody else about queers. But he started with the premise that it was his job to embrace me and not reject me and figure out how to love and support me. And um, it, it kind of ended up, rather than love me, in spite of the fact that I was a sissy, he loved the sissy in me. He learned how to do that.
1: I mean, that's remarkable, and that's not a lot of—that's not what you hear from mm. a lot of queer people, especially people that are like, I'm out and proud, and I'm a performer in public. Um, it's really encouraging to hear how different your upbringing was. It,
0: it was very different in that regard. My sissiness was not a secret. The fact fact that I was a sissy was a a discussable topic at the dinner table. Um, How to accommodate my sissiness was um, reviewed and discussed by my dad and my mother and my brothers and sisters all along. It was like my sissiness that was incorporated into the fabric of family life as a given yeah. Okay, this is who he is, and this is how we're going to accommodate it. And this is, there were a lot of accommodations made. I was a catastrophe at farming. <laughs> I was m- more of a catastrophe at mechanics. That was befuddling to my father. But again, it it was his headset to uh, love the child God gave him.
1: did you start performing? Like, when did you start... I mean, I imagine there were some probably scary and exciting first performances as a young kid.
0: I started performing when my aunt stood me on a picnic table when I was five years old and made me sing Your Cheating Heart.
1: Stop! <laughs> and we still do that song on the Roundup Tour, which we will yeah, get to later right. in this interview. <laughs> um, uh,
0: one, of the th- one of the things that was uh, true in my childhood... Mm-hmm was that everybody knew that I was a ham bone mm-hmm. and um that performance was in me and that uh, um it was something that I did
1: yeah and when did you start writing music uh,
0: about uh 1969 mm-hmm. there's a a story behind that yeah i'd love but... to hear it
1: here we are <laughs>
0: <clears throat> okay here's the story <laughs> Uh, I was kicked out of the Peace Corps in 1966 for homosexual behavior, Uh, and it was um, traumatic. Mm -hmm. And I did not have a fully developed sense of my gay identity Mm -hmm. when that happened. And uh, it put me on a path for about three years of trying to figure out my way through that. And one of the things that my father told me, and which is a whole nother story, but one of the things that my father told me about being gay was to not sneak mm. or it would ruin my immortal soul. He told me that on a hayfield in 1958. Gosh. Don't sneak or you'll ruin your immortal soul. So I took that to heart. And like, that's... Pretty deep sage advice, right? And so the conflict that I had was uh, how, and this was pre-Stonewall, how do you be a homosexual and not sneak? How do you do that? It, it seemed an impossible conundrum. Mm-hmm. And uh, I took it to heart. I didn't want to sneak because I knew my dad was right. But I couldn't imagine how to be a homosexual and not sneak and not pay like a huge price. Right. So my, my father died when I was a senior in high school, long before I was kicked out of the Peace Corps. After I was kicked out of the Peace Corps, one of the things that I did was I started hitchhiking. And I hitchhiked around the country for a year. And it was all about me being in a turmoil and trying to figure out this dilemma of my sexuality and how I was going to handle it. And it was, you know, hippie time when people, a lot of people were hitchhiking. So I was hitchhiking around the country. And OK, here comes the story then about how I wrote the first song. I got stuck in rural Minnesota uh, one, one night. What time of year? It was summer, thank God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I got st- I got stuck hitchhiking and you can't you can't hitchhike at night. It doesn't work. People are too afraid to stop and pick up somebody at night and uh, and I knew that about hitchhiking. It's like when the sun goes down, forget it. You have to get somewhere and wait till morning to be able to get out and and I knew that. So there was a cottonwood grove um over in a farmer's field, off the freeway, about two, three hundred yards. And I decided I was gonna have to spend the night in the Cottonwood Grove. And uh, so I settled into the Cottonwood Grove and I was um, at a low point in my emotional crisis, trying to figure out what to do. And like a lot of gay people then and now, one of the things that popped into my head was that I could commit suicide and that would solve the problem. Um and I wouldn't have to be in agony anymore and I wouldn't exist anymore and the problem would go away. I was never fully suicidal in my psyche, but it was something that I was contemplating that night. And while I was con- <laughs> while I was contemplating it, Uh, My father showed up, here's my dad, in the cottonwood grove with me. And uh, he said, uh, so you're thinking about killing yourself, are you? I said, well, you know, it's a thought. And he said, well, you can do that if you want. I can't stop you, but... If you're going to kill yourself, you're going to have to kill yourself in front of me. (laughs) So what do you think of that? And it doesn't matter where you are, and it doesn't matter when, but if you think about killing yourself, anytime I'm going to show up and I'm going to watch you kill yourself, if you have enough nerve. (laughs) To kill yourself, you're going to have to do it in front of me. It was a very clear message. Mm-hmm. And his hand was on my shoulder. I could feel his hand on my shoulder. I could see him. It was an apparition, right? Mm-hmm. So he sat with me in the cotton field all night long, which amounted to encouraging me not to kill myself. But uh, in his wry sense of humor, crass way... He was going, to, "Okay, kill yourself. I'm going to watch." <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's dark Patrick. <laughs> That's pretty dark humor. <laughs> so,
0: yeah. yeah <laughs> he, he he had that capacity. So, in the morning, when the sun came up, he said, "Okay, look here, I held your hand all night long and, you know, patted you on the head and loved you. And now here's the deal. I'm sick of you shilly-shallying around. And I'm sick of you wandering around like a chicken with your head cut off, pretending like you don't know what you're going to do. And you know what you have to do and get the job done. I'm tired of watching you flop around knowing what you have to do and you and then you won't do it and and I'm not I don't I raised you better than that and I'm not putting up with it so get out there and get done what you have to do I walked out of the cottonwood grove and in my mind and I didn't realize it at the time but in my mind the first strains of music from lavender country started playing that was the that was the beginning of me it's a hell of an origin story
1: (laughs) thank god or thank whoever uh that you that your dad was there i want to i want to hit pause sort of this is sort of like an unconventional interview because i have both of you here and i want to actually sort of meanwhile back at the ranch jb Uh this same time 1969 1970 where are you what are you doing
3: <laughs> I, I was in the Navy I had been in the Navy since 1961 wow. so I was having a great time um, I just graduated from x-ray school and became an x-ray technician in the Navy which I did for 22 years wow. I had been assigned from uh, from Philadelphia to San Francisco and uh was in the closet, way back in the closet, mm-hmm. trying to fool folks think you know, into thinking that I was straight. Uh going out to the straight clubs with straight men. One night I got sick and decided I'd just walk back to the base. Little be, <laughs> be known to me, I walked across um uh it wasn't the Castro but uh it was close close mm-hmm. by and I thought I would just walk back. Where I could catch the bus and go back to Treasure Island, mm-hmm. where where I was stationed, and two men came up the street, and we were holding hands, and it just blew my mind that you know six o'clock in the evening, two guys would have be brave enough to do something like that to
1: be holding hands in public. So anyway,
3: yeah. yeah so anyway, it started to uh, get me to thinking about my own sexuality and why was I so. Attractive but yet repulsed mm-hmm. at the same time, but anyway, it was a way my awakening to the fact that that I was a gay man
1: and what did you if like if you were to like try to read your own mind at that time of of your mm-hmm. life, did you have a vision of where you would be and what you would be doing fifty years into the future
3: well in sixty nine I had been in the navy long enough to know that I did want to do a career, I thought I would retire mm-hmm. and then you know, I didn't have any really big plans after that. Whatever came, you know, I was just willing to go for it.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, I want to jump back to—we're still in Washington State, right, Patrick? I mean, did you? Mm-hmm. When did you go home after that, like vagabond time, Peace Corps, uh, hitchhiking? Like, what was the? What was your next move?
0: One of the things that happened before the Cottonwood Grove. Mm-hmm was that I was hitchhiking through Missoula, Montana. And a young man picked me up who happened to be a Crow, Native American Crow. Mm-hmm. And um, he was young, he was only 18, but he was a, a wise soul and very gay. And uh, we had an interlude that was emotionally uh, connecting. Mm-hmm. So when I when I walked out of the cottonwood grove and my dad told me I, I I knew what I had to do. The first thing that I could think of was to return to my crow lover. Mm-hmm. And so when the, when the guy picked me up in uh, Minnesota and said, "Where are you going?" I said, "I'm going to Missoula, Montana." You went back. okay so that's where i went to reunite with him and uh and i did and he was my first lover and he was going to school at the university of montana so i got a job working for the welfare department as a child welfare worker so that i could be with him Mm -hmm. about eight or nine months later is when the when the Stonewall Rebellion happened. Mm -hmm. And so uh, he didn't have the need to come out. It wasn't something that was on his agenda. He was, frankly, he was deeper than that. Mm -hmm. Um, But he knew that I had to do it. So he supported me to do that, and I did come out in Missoula, Montana, like the day after Stonewall. Mm -hmm. And that was an... An interesting story, and coming out of Missoula, Montana, in 1969, was mm, dicey. Was it all fun and
1: games? <laughs> Did they throw you a parade? <laughs> Not exactly. <laughs>
0: uh, but uh, there are stories involved with that, or which are good stories. But um, the, the, to get move on to the lavender mm-hmm. country story. I got accepted to go to graduate school in Seattle in 1970. And uh, Seattle was a great place to be if you were gonna be one of the Stonewall Rebellion people. So there was a good solid community of Stonewall activists in Seattle. And, uh, And I joined up with them in 1970. And I was also working at a GI anti-war coffee house um, where I was exposed to a lot of radical ideas. And one thing led to another, and uh, I applied to and was accepted into an organization called the Vincer Ramos Brigade. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of it?
1: I think so, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's it's an organization where American progressives were invited to go to Cuba Mm -hmm. to learn about the Cuban Revolution. Mm -hmm. And um, I was lucky enough to be accepted into into the Vince Ramos Brigade. And I did go to Cuba for four months, which was very enlightening and eye-opening. Yeah really very much so and it's what solidified me into being uh, a screaming marxist bitch
1: <laughs> when are we getting the screaming marxist bitch tattoos oh because I'll fly out
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> okay more on that later to our listeners
1: <laughs> so i want to know how that early political education like came together into the first lavender country album because that shit is radical.
0: Here's what happened. From the strains of the music, from the Cottonwood Grove, mm-hmm. and from my country music background, um I came up with a a Gene Autry parody and I don't I do you know even know who Gene Autry is? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: okay. Well, he was a big deal in the 50s on TV. You know the Gene Autry show. He was yeah, a cowboy, yeah. blah, blah blah blah, all that. His seems his theme song was "Back in the Saddle Again." I'm back in yep. the saddle <laughs> again. Uh, so, um, we formed a gay caucus in Cuba, mm-hmm. and uh, it was problematic, and there was a lot of homophobia in Cuba mm-hmm. as. As there was in Kansas City and Seattle and everywhere else, it just expressed itself in a different way. It was like you can't you can't be a revolutionary and you can't be a member of the working class if you're a queer, which is of course absurd, but that was what was being thrown at us and um and of course, it's just a divisive way of dividing the working class.
1: Of course. And
0: yeah, right. and that's what it's for, right? And also
1: nothing's changed because nowadays, you know how they <laughs> the newspapers love to, they're like, we pulled some working class voters and it's all straight white guys from six counties in this country. The working class is so much broader than anybody wants to admit, but that's just Ex- one
0: woman's opinion. <laughs> exactly. And mm-hmm. so uh, I wrote a song about that because... Mm-hmm after coming up in child labor more intensive than any child should ever have to put up with from my childhood and being the the son of you know working class poverty stricken parents I was more than affronted by being accused of not being a member of the working class. That was like, fuck you. Excuse <laughs> me. <laughs> right. You're like, Pardon me, but uh and so from the Cottonwood Grove and from uh Gina Autry, I wrote my first song about that experience in Cuba and it was and the name of the song was Back in the Closet Back in the Again. Closet. Yeah, Back in the Closet. It's a great song. Uh, yeah, about uh, the perils of dividing the working class. And so I came back to Seattle having written that song. And it was the first song that I actually completed in, mm-hmm. uh, to make Lavender Country. And I started singing that song to the Stonewall activists in Seattle and the community of activists surrounded themselves around me and encouraged me to write an album of gay country music and uh, helped me and helped me find the musicians and helped me raise the money to get into the studio and helped me produce the album and helped me sell the album through underground newspapers and queer newspapers and that kind of thing.
1: Wait, can you talk a little bit about that process? So what that means for our contemporary listeners is you would put an ad for your album in alternative and underground newspapers, and then people would write in to order their copy, and then you would mail them an LP. Is that the is that accurate?
0: That's what happened. Send $4.50 to P.O. Box 22228 Seattle. <laughs> 98122 two, and we'll send you a copy of Lavender Country and that was how we did it. And uh we we produced a thousand albums which cost mm-hmm. us $4000 which was a huge amount of money at that time. That's and nice. uh, the community of Stonewall activists came up with the money to make the album and uh help me sell it. So Lavender Country was very much a collective effort.
1: And who did you imagine the audience would be? Did you was it mostly people through word of mouth who were a part of your like queer activist community in Seattle? Yeah.
0: The the album that's a good point. The album was made for the community of Stonewall activists. Mm-hmm. Around the country, who were doing that activity at that time, that's what was on my mind when I made the album, and that's who I was targeting as an audience. Mm-hmm. Um, we weren't stupid; we knew Lavender Country wasn't gonna have commercial value, and it didn't. And we're we're right about that. Fair enough. Um, yeah. Uh-huh. So I made the album for people who were out and people who were struggling to come out. That was my target audience. And that was who we performed to and that's who heard the album and that's who bought the album. Mm -hmm. And that was pretty much the scope of who bought Lavender Country. There were a few heterosexual people who appreciated the album and maybe bought a copy, but not many. Mm-hmm. Um, but so it was—it was the Stonewall activists and their supporters who appreciated Lavender Country and and pretty much nobody else.
1: Well, I think that's a really interesting point because I think nowadays it's almost taboo to say like my music is for my community and it's for certain people and not everyone is going to like it or appreciate it. And it's not for everyone because now of course, like with streaming music is available around the world and it can kind of get sanitized from its context. So I think it's really cool for our listeners to hear about your perspective on that. Like there are some albums that are like, they're political and they're for a certain community. Um, So I just wanted to like, you know, hammer that in for everyone that's listening. What happened next is actually is sort of like the stuff of legend, but I want to make it real for people. Um, for those who might not know, like, as the legend goes, Lavender Country was this radical, incredible album that some people heard, but like the mainstream Nashville country music machine was never going to accept. And you didn't have the traditional music career that a lot of artists like aspire to, you know, your second album came out, what, 50 years later, I think the simple story is like, you were rejected. And then homophobia declined, people became more accepting. And lo and behold, now you're a star. And isn't it so great that now you're a star. I think it's a lot more complicated than that. And there were a lot of strategic and conscious decisions that you made when you decided not to continue to pursue that country music career. So can you talk a little bit about what was going through your head after the release of your album?
0: There was no hope for any commercial success for Lavender Country when we made it. And I knew that the making of Lavender Country would put a scarlet letter on my back forever and I would always be that person who made that album and what actually happened was that after we quit performing Lavender Country for the couple of years that it lasted among Stonewall activists was that nobody wanted to do music with me Because I was the person who did that thing.
1: Are you talking other musicians, producers, Uh, everyone?
0: Everyone. I was shunned by everybody. Um, Some people appreciated Lavender Country maybe a little bit. But nobody was prepared to work with me. Okay, that's fine. I knew that when I made the album. I had to give give up uh, all my aspirations to be any kind of country music, anything, because I made the album, and I chose a life of queer socialist activism as my life work, and, uh, and gave up any aspirations to be any kind of performing artist, because... My chances to do that were killed, were murdered <laughs> with the with the uh, making of Lavender Country. And like I say, I knew that at the time. I knew that was the likely outcome. And I had chosen to be, for my life, a screaming Marxist bitch as opposed to a performer. Um, And it was a hard choice. It was a painful choice. I really loved performing. I wanted to be a performer, but I couldn't do both. I couldn't couldn't have both. I had to choose one or the other. Mm -hmm. And I did choose. And so I spent a life being a gay Marxist advocate and activist. And I did that a lot. Mm-hmm. For decades, and all kinds of movements, queer the Nation movement, of Islam, quiet yeah, as th- it's kept. yeah. I, I mm-hmm. ran for office with the guys from the Nation of Islam on a black gay unity platform. For and I did that twice, and I did a lot of other work in the black community. I did a lot of uh, union organizing. I was a shop steward for a while. I did the anti-apartheid movement. I continued to be active in the gay movement. Of course, I was always supporting all manner of feminist issues and causes. Um, I was a a socialist rabble-rouser with a big mouth. And I was successful at that. I did that for decades. And uh, I did a lot of good work. And there were a lot of other, there were a lot of other issues in my life besides lavender country. I sat lavender country aside and let, forgot it.
1: I'm curious, do you think that being a, a singer and performer However briefly you had the opportunity to do that, do you think that that influenced how you showed up as a community organizer? Do you think there are aspects of your performance persona that you brought to your political work?
0: Well, you're always a ham bone. (laughs) (laughs) And it's in your blood. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that was true in my childhood and in, in my early college was that I did a lot of public speaking. So being adroit at public speaking and being an activist, of course, there was, there was a dovetail there. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I did a fair amount of public speaking when I was an activist. At various points, when I was running for office, JB and I helped establish the first needle exchange in Seattle, which was highly controversial. And I ended up being a spokesperson for that activity. I was probably on television 15 or 20 times. Hello. during the Yeah, during the course of my activist career. And that probably was from my ability as a as a public speaker, but it wasn't my focus. My focus was going to meetings, going to demonstrations, running leaflets, mm-hmm. that, all that stuff. Uh, I wasn't focused on being a public speaker, but I did have that ability. And so I ended up on TV a few times.
1: Um, I have a question for JB at this point in the timeline. Mm-hmm. When did you meet Patrick and what was your first impression of him?
0: Tell the truth, baby doll.
1: <laughs> you're, I, please, please remember you're under oath.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you.
3: <laughs> uh, listen, um, I uh, was in the military, as I said, for 22 years, very non political. You know, you're just a droid, you do what you're told all throughout, you know, from the very beginning to, through the Vietnam War, you do what you're told. I retired in 1985, and about um, I would say about six months later, a mutual friend said to me, "Oh, I have a friend named Patrick, and uh, he's really into black guys, and he would probably like to meet you." And I said, "Well, no," nah. I sort of put it off because <laughs> I because I had been secretly in another relationship with someone for nine years while I was in the military, wow, but I was never out with that person and uh so my friend finally wore me down after about the third time. oh come on uh, uh, my some lesbian friends are having a poetry meeting let 's just go. You can you know at least meet the guy so tell us first
1: time the lesbian poetry meeting
3: I, <laughs> it was some great poetry, let me tell you, I was very impressed. Uh, So I met Patrick, but uh, so what, you know, wasn't much there. He was so serious and uh, he he didn't even know how to dance, which just was incredible. The first gay man I'd ever met didn't know how to dance. Well, JB, you can't be too
1: hard on him because you are an incredibly good dancer and it's going to be pretty hard for others to meet your standard.
0: Yeah, really?
3: (laughs) I don't know I've seen it. Yeah, (laughs) well, thank you. But anyway, um, you know, the first meeting just went along and uh, I guess Patrick had asked asked about me uh, and my mutual friend said, oh, come on, let's just go dancing again or uh, come to a meeting or something like that. And... Anyway, I hooked up with Patrick again and as he started to intrigue me by the fact that he he was really so sincere about his politics, I had never met anybody like that, especially a gay person. And uh, you know, the more I sort of listened to his rap and his his friends, you know, what they were talking about, I said, you know, this is serious and I realized that I had been cut out of anything political the whole time mm. I was in the military and little by little it's he it start to wear on me. <laughs> so, and I start liking it more and more so.
1: Okay, well It was great. The two of you are my favorite couple and I have a lot of questions about like selfishly how you make this life in art and politics together. Um what were the conversations like between the two of you? As you started, Patrick, thinking about getting back into music, like when the two of you met, you were both like in in similar communities, you were you were doing political work. And then it must have been quite a curveball to be like, oh, I also have this music career that might come back around and thrust us back into the public eye. What was the thinking like between the two of you were was one of you more eager to like, let's get back into the lavender country limelight. Were you mm-hmm. concerned about what it might mean for your family?
0: Let's start from the beginning, JV. Yeah. <laughs> well, how did you find out about Lavender Country?
3: Okay. Me and Patrick met, I think, in 1977. I, I mean, yeah, I'm sorry, 1987. Um, it wasn't until almost 1990 at a, at a party at a friend's house. I was looking through his record collection and I just saw. a a record called Lavender Country I said this is what is this and he said oh that's Patrick's album and I said what
1: you never told him about your album no
3: uh, no, together uh, (laughs) over three years and I he never mentioned the music that had ever done anything like that so I said I was intrigued you know listened to a little bit of it and said this this is kind of kind of cool you know it wasn't Donna Summers and Disco which I was really (laughs) into but it was political and I uh I found out more and start liking, you know, liking even more.
1: Wow. I'm Patrick, I am amazed that you, to me, it feels like if I had released an album like so personal and important, what was it like to like have your partner find out about that three years into your relationship?
0: Well, it, it, there's. it's kind of a twofold answer. One is that Lavender Country was dead, dead, dead. Mm-hmm and had been dead for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I was about something else. I had taken all of my little wounds and cuts about Lavender Country and what happened to it. I, I, my scars were healed, and my emotions about Lavender Country, and the, even the fact that I had made it, um, I stuck into a cocked hat and put it mm-hmm. on the shelf, and went into the rest of my life. I was a busy guy with things to do. I needed to get married. I had a couple of kids. It took me 20 years to raise them. I was doing all this activist work, running for office, blah, blah, blah. It just wasn't um, on my agenda. The second part of the answer is, why pick a scab off a wound? It's like, it happened... Lavender Country was made. It was a really good album. I know that. It's going to die unsung. Nobody cares about Lavender Country. Why should you pull the scab off the wound by even talking about it to anybody? So there were two things. One, I was busy doing something else. Mm -hmm. And two, it hurt. Why pick it?
1: So, I mean, coming from that completely understandable place... How did it come to be that you made a second album? Like and there was a reissue of Lavender Country as well. Like what was it like to to say okay, I'm going to try this again?
0: I we JB and I moved to a different county away from Seattle mm-hmm. um where nobody knew who I was. And particularly nobody knew that I was the one who made that album. Got it. And uh I found another music partner. A, a great guy named Bobby Taylor who played harp, harmonica, blues. And we met and we worked out a a deal to where we played old covers to old people in retirement homes and Alzheimer's units and stuff. And I loved it. And I, it, it allowed me to, to get back into doing music which, of course, was in my heart all the time. Sure. And it allowed me to get back into being a ham bone. Um, and I did that activity with Bobby Taylor for a long time uh, 15 years or so. Wow. And um, we did it a lot like mm, 100 shows a year. Like, I probably did 1,000 shows with Bobby Taylor each show an hour long. Uh, And uh, I was doing that, thrilled to be able to do music because it was in me all along, right? And so somebody put Cock Sucking Tears on YouTube and I didn't know that because I didn't even know what YouTube was. Mm -hmm. And somebody else heard it, a music affectionato named... uh, Jeremy Cargill out of Chicago not gay but an Americana music buff and he heard the song on YouTube and said what is this and he went to eBay and he found one of my 1973 vinyls for sale and he bought it and played it And because he was who he was and because enough time had elapsed for people to get over their homophobia, he realized what it was. And he realized its historical significance. And he took it to a label, again, not a gay label, who were specializing in unsung Americana and said, don't you guys want this? And I don't, I know nothing about what's going on. All this is going on behind my back.
1: Right. You, you're not even involved at this point.
0: I'm not involved. I had nothing to do with having Lavender Country come back to life. I was not a player. And then the guy from the label called me up and offered me a record contract. Oh, my God. Out of the blue, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's what happened. I didn't believe him. I, I thought he was a. Sh- I thought he was a shyster, and I thought that what really happened was somebody con- generated a computer list of anybody who had ever made an album, and that the next words out of his mouth were going to be "just send us eight thousand dollars and we'll reissue." <laughs> right? I was almost positive that was what was going on, but. On the off chance that there was something real going on here, I played along with this guy, and he noticed my skepticism. And so he sent me a $300 advance check in the mail to begin the process of reissuing Lavender Country. Wow. And I took it to the credit union, and I told the woman that I thought the check was a rubber check. And that she needed to check it out thoroughly before she cashed it. And she came about 10 minutes later, said, I checked it out. I don't know what's going on, but the check is good. There's funds in the bank. Here's your 300 bucks. And that's when it hit me that Lavender Country had a chance of being reissued. And I went out to the car, and the 40 years' worth of scab over about what happened to Lavender Country came ripping <laughs> ripping off. And uh, it was a very emotional experience for me. Fortunately, I was alone, thank God. And um, I went, oh, my God. Somebody in the world thinks Lavender Country is worth $300. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. Somebody actually thinks Lavender Country is worth $300. Uh, I exploded. Yeah. You and know? so the
1: album has exploded. I was on the road with you this spring. And I mean, I've never seen people react at a live show that way. That album means so much to people. Um, For any of our listeners who haven't heard the whole album and your new album, Blackberry Rose, like, I'm just so excited for people to hear it. I want to take a moment to frame that story in the way that you framed it for me when we were on the road. And And you framed it in interviews. Like, a lot of people would hear that story and say, like, again, it's this miracle story, Cinderella story. But you frame it in terms of dialectical materialism. Can you explain... Your thinking on the reissue and the new reaction.
0: I, I'm glad. I'm glad that you asked because dialectical materialism, or the theory of things turning into their opposite, is very apropos. This song, the song, "Cock Sucking Tears," was the definitive song that made Lavender Country unplayable, unlistenable, unacceptable. The song that sank Lavender Country into oblivion for 40 years was that song. All of the album uh, could, you can look at in terms of dialectical materialism yeah, uh, because it turned into its opposite and that which was unspeakable became... Microphone friendly. (laughs) But it was the song, Cock Sucking Tears, that went on YouTube that caused Jeremy Jeremy Cargill to go, what is this? And to investigate it and to discover Lavender Country and to take it to a label and say, so the very song that sank Lavender Country into the depths of hell was the song that was responsible for jettisoning it into the stratosphere it turned into its opposite <laughs> here's here's the thing about that i didn't change i was the same person politically that i was when i made lavender country i didn't change lavender country didn't change The reissue of Lavender Country is literally and actually the very recording that we made in 1973. Mm -hmm. It's the same recording. So clearly, Lavender Country didn't change. So what changed? And of course, the answer is the culture changed. That's a twofold answer. One, straight white men still control the music industry, right? Yeah. Right, right off the bat. And they controlled it in 1975. But the headset of the white men who went into music in 2014 was a very different headset than maybe the men who were in, in it in 1975. There, and it has two prongs. One they were over their homophobia to the extent that they could accept gay people. It wasn't alarming to them. Maybe their brother was gay. They'd met many lesbians and gays in the course of the 40 years and it was like normalized in their mind and it was like no big deal that somebody was gay and they they had that in their headset. They had developed to that point. Also, by 2014, everybody could feel creeping fascism emerging. And of course, <laughs> nobody, it's not even creeping anymore, it's full-blown, and we're, we're staring it in the face. But people could feel that, and the, the white men who chose to have a career in music could feel that, and... uh and they have they still had the power. And and so the white men who discovered Lavender Country who weren't gay said, Oh, this is really cool and this is a really interesting story. And here's a guy who's, you know, been at it for a long time. And I want to put my byline on this label because I want to tell the world that I'm against fascism, and uh, and that's what happened. And person after person after person after person approached me, not because they knew me, because they didn't have a clue who I was, and not because they were gay, because they weren't necessarily gay. They approached me because they wanted to fight fascism. And everybody, whether they're straight or gay or, or black or white or men or, feminine, or, or feminists or trans or what, everybody who approaches me about Lavender Country approaches me from that vantage. They want to fight fascism and they want everybody to know that they're against fascism So the fact that they got over their homophobia and they wanted a tool to fight fascism is like the political analysis of like what happened. I didn't change. Lavender Country didn't change. What changed? People got over their homophobia and people were looking for a tool to fight fascism. And frankly, Lavender Country is a very good tool to fight fascism.
1: Okay, I have a lot more questions, but we are way over time. I could talk to you both all night, and the next time I'm on the West Coast, we will. But do you have time and willingness to do a very brief lightning round?
0: You mean final thoughts? Is that what you're talking uh, about? That's the those. Uh, that's the well, round. yeah.
1: Okay, I only have I have six of these questions. Let's go, JB first, and then Let's Patrick go. on each, just as fast as you can. Okay. Favorite ice cream flavor?
0: I hate to admit it. Vanilla. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Patrick, that's so unlike you. I know. <laughs> if you could have dinner with anyone living or dead, who would it be? Oh,
3: well,
0: maybe James Baldwin.
1: James Baldwin.
0: I think I'll stick with that. Yeah, you, yeah, you could yeah, both have James Baldwin I, I, over I, I, for dinner. I, I, um, I, could, I, I could be James Baldwin in my next life. I, I'd love it.
1: Maybe you will be. What is your pet peeve?
0: Similar, my pet peeve is political pessimism.
1: Who is your favorite current country artist?
0: You
3: know, other than Patrick's music, I'm really not deep into country music. But uh, Jet Holden, a young black man who... Oh, he yes, just it. blew me away. So he's uh, my, my favorite.
0: Chad Hol- Holden. Mm-hmm. You mean it's not me, baby, though? No. My favorite country musician is now, was then, and will forevermore be Patsy Cline.
1: Patsy Cline. What is your favorite flower?
0: Tulip. And
3: because when you've had them for about a week... They change direction depending upon where someone went, and they dance, so I love them all kinds of weird shapes, but I just love the way they move around
0: um i I guess mine might be daffodil um on the farm that I grew up on, next door, there was a farm that used to be a daffodil farm and uh and it was a pretty good sized farm, like forty acres. And every spring, even though it was no longer a daffodil farm, the daffodils would come up. And it was like the first promise that maybe we'd get some sunshine.
1: Okay, my last question is a guest question from our mutual friend, Paisley Fields. What is the secret to a long and happy marriage?
3: There is no secret. You know, I don't even know why people bother to ask such a crazy question. Mm -hmm. You go, (laughs) dang... After day after day, and for me, it's where we are now. There is no secret i I can't tell you what we did right or wrong. you know, was him politicizing me? the needle exchange, the different things that we did together it was supposed to be That's all I can say
0: um i I have a very quick and very decisive answer. Make sure you marry a really nice guy <laughs> that helps a lot. You spent enough time with JB to know what a nice man he really is, right? Yes, uh, both of you. I know, but he wins the prize. You know it and so, you know it and so do <laughs> I. <laughs> you might be right. I married a really nice man, and it made all the difference.
1: Patrick and JB, I am so grateful that you agreed to be on Basic Folk. Both of you mean a lot to me and the tour and the albums are just like treasures to me. Um, so I'm just so appreciative of both of you sharing your stories with us.
0: Um, thank you for that. But I, I can turn that around on you. Yeah, you're a sweetheart.
2: <laughs>
0: I really yeah. appreciate you, oh, yeah. and your music is fantastic. And I can hardly wait to do some more work with you. I love you. To- yeah. I love you got to do it pieces again. personally and professionally. And I can, I can hardly wait till you. we get together again.
2: This episode of Basic Folk was produced by John Nungesser. Alex Stanton composes our music. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can find all of our episodes there, wherever you get podcasts. You can search for us on the SiriusXM app. Or you can go to our website, basicfolk.com. Thanks for listening. Bye.